So what we're talking about are temperatures that were anywhere from 110 to 130 degrees with almost 100 degree humidity. The men worked almost naked because of the intense heat in the refineries, and they worked 12-hour days. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. With us today is Jeffrey Cobb, a local historian and the author of Greenpoint, Brooklyn's Forgotten Past, The King of Greenpoint, and The Rise and Fall of the Sugar King. He is a Brooklyn High School history teacher and a Greenpoint resident for over 20 years. He also keeps a blog titled Historic Greenpoint and writes for greenpointers.com. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us today. Do you want us to call you Jeffrey or Jeff today? Jeff is fine. Jeff is fine. Great. Thank you very much for, for having us. You know, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you about my writing and about Brooklyn history. Yeah, we are too. We, we are especially pleased to have you because we have read some of your work and we appreciate yes. how exciting and how interesting you made the history of this particular area. We happen to be in Williamsburg, Brooklyn today, and that tends to be one of the areas that you focus on. But what we've realized is that there is so much that you can do with literature to bring back a meaningful time period and that we lose touch with, right? And we forget what the, what the real lessons were. And I think you helped to bring those back with your writing. Right. It's interesting. About six or seven years ago, a, a friend of mine said to me, you know, you're so interested in local history. Why don't you write a book? And the thought never really occurred to me. So... I began to research the history of our area, and I was fascinated by it. But writing is a, a process, unless you're in tremendously gifted, which I'm not. Writing is about hard work and trial and error and revisions. So the first drafts of what I wrote were tedious. They didn't have a voice, and I don't think they read well. But I kept trying to find a style that was very approachable because my real desire was to tell neighborhood stories in a way that average people in Greenpoint could appreciate local history. And then eventually what I realized is that you had to tell stories where they captured people's emotions, where people could reflect on their past, and that humanized it. So I came up with a kind of a, a mix. All of my stories are based on real events. They're all based on real people. But I try to imagine what it would have been like to live through those times, what my characters would have felt, what thoughts might have been in their head. And some people tell me that, that I've arrived at something that, that's very readable. Right. How long did it take you to write the first book? As it sounds like you had, as you said, a process. What, how long was that process? How difficult? How... It was about four years, and it was very difficult. One of the things that you and I have talked about is having that circle of critical friends. And I have a very critical friend, Patrick, who has the gift of bluntness. <laughs> and some of the first drafts, you just said, no, it's not there. No. Uh -huh. And yet, you know, I persevered. And, and I think eventually I came up with it with a style that, that's readable and yet really kind of captures the historic errors that I try to describe. Yeah, more than readable, really. I mean, I am not typically attracted to pick up long historic 
narratives, but your book just made stuff come alive. I mean, reading about life inside of the sugar factory, what the people's expectations were for their lives, and knowing that it was just right here, just, you know, 20 feet away when I'm in that area, it just is a tremendous addition to my my appreciation for Brooklyn. It's funny, we're sitting here in an apartment on North 6th Street, and if we were here 100 years ago, the whole bank of the East River, which today is lined with high-rise condominiums, were lined with uh, 12 sugar refineries. This was the largest place for sugar refining in the world. I really kind of stumbled on this story in a, in a different way. So as I began to do readings and people began to ask me questions about the history of the area, one of the questions I repeatedly got was, how did our part of Brooklyn become so heavily Polish? Hmm. And the answer is that Polish people came as, as immigrants and did the work that no one else wanted to do. They worked in the hellacious conditions of these refineries, and they were especially targeted because they could not speak English and they could not relate the kind of horrors that they experienced on a daily basis. So what we're talking about are temperatures that were anywhere from 110 to 130 degrees with almost 100 degree humidity. The men worked almost naked because of the intense heat in the refineries, and they worked 12-hour days. And what was really striking to outsiders was that men who went into the refineries as visibly strong, virile, healthy men, after a few months, their physical condition was completely changed. Mm. They were gaunt. They had lost weight. They looked sickly. So I went back and, and went through many of the old newspapers, and I got some information, but the owners of these sugar refineries knew that were worried to get out how inhuman the conditions were inside, and that there would be repercussions. So they had a, a very active policy of forbidding journalists to come inside. So the workers worked 12-hour days, and you can imagine what it must have been like at the end of your 12-hour shift, right? You've worked in this incredible humidity you're lightheaded, and there were a number of accidents. So one of the accidents that I described in the book was the eldest son in the Havermeyer family, and the Havermeyers were the kings of the sugar industry here. They became vastly wealthy. George Havermeyer, the oldest son, was killed in an industrial accident right before the eyes of his father, and the father never recovered. But this was not an isolated incident. This happened on a regular basis. The catwalks that they walked up and down on, the ladders that they climbed, were coated with sugar as they refined the sugar. Huge sugar clouds spread throughout the factory, and it would coat the metal. So the metal became slippery. Men would fall down. And then when they became victims of industrial accidents, sometimes being killed, other times being maimed, they were summarily fired, and there was no workman's compensation if you had seven or eight children at home, which was the norm in this part of Brooklyn, your family suffered. I really wanted to tell this story because, one, it's a compelling story. But two, when we look at history, we're always looking at the modern day. There's a movement in this country to say that the past was glorious and that we, we need to recapture this wonderful past. Well, 
before we had industrial laws and before we had workers' compensation, the lives of the average workers were hell. And this kind of, of outrages were, were commonplace. So I, I really think that the movement to deregulate, to believe that business can regulate itself, is, is a dangerous proposition. And when you read this story, it really brings home to people the fact that in the, in the dark old days, life for the average factory worker was pretty brutal. Right. And so in essence, your work is a way to remind, educate, touch on the realities that can come from deregulation, right, in a way. So, so that type of work sort of feeds several purposes. It's uh, bringing back history. It's also kind of saying, be careful, <laughs> right? We're, we're kind of being warned as a society for what to do next. That's a hefty role to take on as a writer in a way, right? Did you, when you were writing, intend, was that your intention or was it just that your, your, your passion for this particular subject just carried you somewhere and then you just wound up realizing, hey, things were not that great. There's something here. I think if, if you think of historical evidence as sort of breadcrumbs, I just follow the breadcrumbs. So uh, I was interested in the refinery story, and I didn't know what I was going to find. But very quickly, the story shaped itself in my, in my mind. And what's really interesting is it's the story of this robber baron, Harry Habermeyer, who was called the sugar king. He was one of the richest men in America. He made tens of millions of dollars. And what's interesting is that his grandson, who, by the way, lived in Williamsburg and wrote until the 1990s, he privately published a biography of his grandfather, and it's a hagiography. Everything about his grandfather was wonderful. Right? He was this great businessman. And all of the evil was airbrushed out. When I began to research Harry Habermeyer, I found that there was a really dark side. And if you think about it in a certain way, there's a villain to my book, and the villain is, is Henry Habermeyer. So let's maybe just talk a little bit about Harry Habermeyer. So his dates are 1849 to 1909. He came from a very, very rich family. The Habermeyers were already, when he was born, the third generation of sugar refiners in New York. They were millionaires. And his father, who had set up a refinery in Lower Manhattan, realized that sugar refining was changing. So the Habermeyers come to New York right around 1799-1800, when sugar is produced in very, very small quantities. And it's an elite, very expensive item for upper-class people. Most common people are never going to touch refined sugar. Rich people locked up their sugar lest their servants lick a spoon. It was that wow. valuable a commodity. Hmm. It was very hard to produce. It was very laborious. It was produced in very small quantities. By the time that he had reached middle age, uh, sugar refining was becoming an industrial process. He realized that people who could produce sugar on an industrial scale we're going to become very, very rich. So he came out here to Williamsburg. There was open land where you could set up a large refinery. And he bought a large piece of property on South 2nd Street in Kent. And in 1858, started refining sugar with his sons. Harry Habermeyer began as a 13-year-old in the refinery. He was taught every aspect of the business. 
And then by the time he was 21, it was pretty clear that he was a genius in marketing and selling sugar. His brother, Theodore, was the foremost expert in the world on the technical aspects of refining sugar. So these two brothers together started to make a fortune. As time went on, especially after the Civil War, more and more people entered the sugar refining industry. And that's where these number of refineries that lined the East River were set up in this time. And there was intense competition. And Harry Habermeyer had a genius idea that was quite illegal. He said, let's all sit down. Let's form a criminal cartel. <laughs> we will all agree to limit the amount of sugar that we refine. We'll all agree to raise the price. We'll all be quiet about it. And we'll all become rich. And this happened. It was called the Sugar Trust. Right? It's formed in 1887. And you know, it went on for, for 20 years until his death. And then one of the things that I, I talk about in great detail in the book is the discovery of his fraud, which his grandson never mentions. That's interesting how he just never... Well, I guess you can do that with literature too, right? You can just polish things up. And as a, as a history teacher, I'm sure some people argue that even our textbooks have gone through a similar process, right? Well, he was writing a biography. So it's not even literature where you. No, have that's anybody. lying. That's in essence, yes, we're but lying. It's, it's a very sort of interesting aspect. Um, so, the, when they set up the refinery in the 1850s, the largest source of sugar for them was Louisiana, and then when the Civil War came, they were cut off from that supply. So they began to import huge amounts of sugar from Cuba and Puerto Rico, and there was a tariff that they had to pay on this raw sugar. So if you can imagine the size of this company that they set up, by the way, we're, we're almost within the stone's throwing distance of the Domino refinery, which was set up by the Havermeyers. It was the largest refinery in the world. And there were seven piers that took in ships that were the size of ocean liners filled with sugar. So we're talking about millions of tons of sugar that were refined here every year. And there were massive scales. So we're sitting in Marina's apartment and the scales would literally be 10 feet by 10 feet. And this massive amounts of sugar were dumped on them and weighed. Hmm. So at some point, no one's sure when, they put a device into the weighing apparatus so that the sugar underweighed what it should have registered. And therefore, they paid much less tax to the government than they should have. This went on for years. The government inspectors were bribed to turn a blind eye. And then finally, miracle of miracles, in 1906, an honest federal inspector discovered this. The man who ran the dock said, just pretend you didn't see this. Name your price and we'll pay it to you. So, right. Couldn't be bought. <laughs> and he said, no way. I'm going to report this. He went to President Theodore Roosevelt. And Roosevelt said, Henry Habermeyer is a criminal. I don't care how rich and powerful he is. I am going to put him in jail. Just to I'm give sorry, some... Uh, yeah, and the stress of knowing that he... All right. 
even though he was one of the richest men in the United States, the stress of his knowing he was going to be prosecuted and end up in jail drove him to an early grave. Yeah. What were you going to say, Doug? Oh, just to get some perspective on it. I mean, we've heard you say that he was a millionaire, but translating that for inflation, how much would he have been worth today? All right. So, jeez, oh, probably. Uh, yeah, I was, yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. Let's say let's let's do a rough estimate that a million then was probably worth a billion now. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. So it's yeah. it's a vast amount of money. But remember, these were in the days before there was income tax. Oh, so all the money they got, they they got to keep. They were vastly wealthy. The thing that struck me so much about that was, you know, if people are working themselves to death. And there is a reason, there is an enormous hardship and struggle, and they're putting themselves into this situation because there is no other choice. It's a different story. But as I read the enormous amounts of wealth and privilege, it would have meant very little for them to have made life easier for their workers. It is just so full of impact to think that they couldn't be bothered. Well, to there, make this is people's this lives is, yeah. a little safer. Well, that well, this is why the villain role comes in, right? I think, and yeah. and, and Jeff didn't even have to make it up. <laughs> it's, it's almost kind of a, yeah. of a little bit of karma when Henry Havermeyer's own son right. was in an industrial accident right in front of him. That was his brother. His brother. brother. Yeah, his older brother. Yeah. So it, yeah. it was his his father, Christian Havermeyer, who set up the the refinery here in Williamsburg with the intention that his sons were going to run it. I honestly think that if, you know, Steven Spielberg were hiring someone to script this story, <laughs> he would need that scene yes. where someone in the Habermeyer yes. family had to be sacrificed because it brings it into such stark relief. And one of the things that I, I try to do is, is not just tell the history of, of the refinery, but talk about the development of Williamsburg. So it is a book about Williamsburg. And when I pick up Williamsburg, in 1844, it's an idealistic, bucolic village that looks like a New England village. It's defined largely by its many churches, right? this beautiful architecture, but it's going to morph into the industrial heartland of New York City, a heavily industrial area with tenements, right, where these immigrants are crowded into god-awful conditions. But one of the things that, as I've done research, one of the things that I, I love about doing historical research is it gives you a sense of what took place on different streets. So not far from here is Kent Avenue. And in 1886, all the workers in the sugar refineries united to try to force unionization on the different sugar refinery owners. There were pitched battles in the streets here. The cops broke people's skulls. There were bullets that were flying. Every time I go up Kent Avenue, I think of the scenes of, of horror that right that took place there. Makes me think of Gangs of New York. Did you see that film? Yes. I thought it was really well done. Did you see it? Oh yes. It was and really well it also done. Also makes me think of the union movements hmm. and the bravery it takes for people to start and then to, you know, continue to support marches and unions. The other thing is uh, in the days before electricity, the factory was very, very poorly ventilated. And on the hottest days of the year, the men were aware that people were going to die. 
so there were days when literally a quarter of the workers were overcome by the heat and humidity, passed out. There were days when eight men died in a single day. There were instances where conditions were so barbaric that a man lost his mind and jumped out of the 11th story of the refinery into the East River to his death. So the Habermeyers knew this. They knew that there were just some days when you should never open the refinery, and yet there was never a day that the refinery did not operate. And in addition to that, there were children that were put to work in the factories, right? Yeah. In this area, probably through the 1930s, nobody went to high school. Very, very few people went to high school, certainly not the working class. So when you finished eighth grade, you went off to industrial work, and a lot of children were maimed in accidents as well. And families just understood that as a price of survival. So what a sad <laughs> moment in that, history. And, and that all happened in a relatively short period of time. The physical change from a bucolic farmland into the industrial cauldron of death. <laughs> but that happened and over, then it over moved probably on. one person's right. lifetime. You know, you could just probably run a camera and fast forward it and watch it. Yeah, and Jeff, what and what would you say about Williamsburg today? I mean, what what do well, you? What's this, your perspective? I just want to hear your perspective this is, on this. Is part of the reason why I wrote the book is that in the forward I talked about how 15 years ago, when I was training for the marathon, I used to run up Kent Avenue, and it's Green Williamsburg's industrial past was was clearly visible, mm -hmm. right? Many of the factories have been knocked down. The Domino building itself is, is being converted into luxury condominiums. So very soon, people would be amazed that there was this industrial history here. And I'm in my middle 50s, but I can remember the poverty of Williamsburg. It's rapidly disappearing, which is a positive thing. But I think it's, it's really important that people know the history and, and what went on here. Yeah, I would agree with that. And now let's talk a little bit about, because you, you have two other books, and those are centered on Greenpoint. Right. And how were those projects comparing to, comparable to, to what you worked on for the Williamsburg project? Well, so the first book that I wrote, Greenpoint's Forgotten Past, covers a huge amount of history. It starts with the first Greenpointer, who was 1645 and ends in 2005. So there are a, a lot of characters, there are big gaps, but I tell a lot of different stories in that. So it's really different than this book because this book really tells one story and it's much more condensed into a 60-year time period. The other book that I wrote, King of Greenpoint, is about probably Greenpoint's most lovable character. This guy, Peter McGinnis, who was a six-foot, 300-pound stevedore, a guy who unloaded ships, and an amateur boxer, got fed up with the political corruption in Brooklyn, and ran Greenpoint as kind of a benevolent despot until his death in 1948. So what was special about that book is that Peter McGinnis's only living granddaughter came out, and I had researched him through documents, but she knew him as a human being. And the first question I wanted to ask her is, I said, did I get him right? She said, you really did an amazing uh, job, that you never met him and that yeah. you, you kind of captured his essence. How did you capture his essence? What, what, what did it take? I mean, how much research? and So what I you? discovered is that 
there was an archive of papers by Apricon College that no one had ever really looked at that spanned his political career. So we're talking about 1919 to 1948. So I went through a lot of it. You know, I'm a trained historian and I, I pieced together his, his life story. There are still some people alive who knew him. I talked to them. I put together his story. What I wanted to do was, again, we talked about buildings disappearing in Williamsburg, transforming physically, but also working class Brooklyn people are dying out. And he was so much the embodiment of what working class people were like. So I felt I really wanted to capture him because very soon people won't know what dock workers were like. They'll be a completely vanished species. It's almost been a threat. I know we've had uh, Amy Marino Lyons in here and we've had James Simon Cunin. And they talked about the desire to leave a record of what things were like when we were here so that it wouldn't be lost information for the future. I think a time capsule is how Amy had referred to it, a time capsule of sorts. And in essence, a book is a time capsule if you can, if, you know, if you think about it. Yeah. And anyone can yeah. happen upon it at any time and once it's published, which is, which is the beauty of it. And I remember Jim was saying, you know, it wasn't really important to talk about what his experiences were. Because I remember he said, people really don't give a shit what happened to you. But they do want to know what it would have been like if they had been there. Right. And that's that. the yes. essence. And it sounds this. like Jeff has definitely been able to do that. And so uh, would you continue with this hellish experiment? Because it sounds like it's, a, like you said, a ton of work. It took you four years for the first book. How long did the other books take you? So I've done research for 15 or 16 years. So I had researched parts of this story before. The last book is about two years of, of real research. Mm. But there's also one other kind of very interesting wrinkle to the Habermeyer story. So in some ways, Habermeyer was, was a villain, but he was a villain with incredible aesthetic tastes and a lot of money. And he remarried his wife's niece, which is kind of funky, <laughs> right? But Louisine Habermeyer, as a young woman, had lived in Paris. And long before she married him, she was the first American to buy a Degas and the first woman to buy a Monet. And with tens of millions of dollars at her disposal, she and her husband would go to Europe every year and buy this amazing art. So when Lucine Habermeyer died in the 1920s, she left a thousand pieces of art to the Metropolitan. And many of them are the best pieces in the collection. Wow. So mm. that art could never have been bought yeah. without all of the suffering here in, in Williamsburg. And I think very few people know that story or, or realize why the Metropolitan has such great impressionism. That is an interesting link. It's an unexpected one, actually. Yes. Right. And they had a house on 66th Street and 5th Avenue. The idea was that that house in the 1880s and 1890s had better art than any American museum. They had a room with five Rembrandts. Hmm. What's also interesting is before them, every rich person slavishly copied French interior designers. And Louisine Habermeyer had enough independence or open-mindedness to hire 
Lewis comforting Tiffany to decorate the inside of her house. And it was an unbelievably beautiful house. The interior was stunning. And it really marked the first time when the elite in America said, well, we can use our own interior designers. And Tiffany, as you all know, mm. right, it really got uh, got a lot of its, its impetus from the Habermeyer's endorsement. It's also an interesting window into the characters. You know, these people can't be drawn in a one-dimensional fashion. They're very complex. I mean, this one was able to appreciate fine art and to dedicate it to a public use at the same time that she was married into a really brutal empire. And it's just not that easy to turn them into a stereotype or dispatch them with, you know, a few quick adjectives. This is a very complicated way yeah, to and present something. Absolutely. And Jeff, some of our listeners may be writers who would like to approach this type of a project. What would you say to them if you were, I like to ask all of our guests, if they were in a, a writing conference and you were talking to a room full of first-time writers who were going to approach history in the way that you have, what would you recommend? What are some well, ideas? I'll, I'll qualify that by saying that I write in a genre which is historic. I, I am first and foremost a, a historian. So do as much research as you can, find as many primary sources, and you'll be amazed how rich primary sources are. That said, I, I think you have to write in a way that engages the imagination of your readers as much as possible. You have to try to see your characters as living, breathing human beings. One of the people who reviewed my book very graciously said he felt like I had sat down and personally interviewed these characters, I knew them. And I, you know, and so what's the secret to that, do you think? Other, I mean, obviously you did your homework, so that, that helps. But would you say there is a, a way in which to do that? Or is it just that the research speaks for itself? Well, no, I, I think you have to imagine what these people were like. And I think that you find scenes when characters really expose themselves or scenes that are, are going to mark them for the rest of their life. So the scene that I spoke about earlier where the oldest son, the heir apparent to the Havermeyer throne, was killed in front of his father's eyes, that speaks volumes. So it's sort of like an artist. You you get a sense of, of things that have to be on your canvas. Right. If that makes sense. That does make sense. I, but even I get that. going one step before that, when you are trying to find the facts and to assemble them, I'm curious whether you think that there was a wealth of information that Brooklyn and New York in general does a great job of putting together archives and preserving source material for historians, or whether you know it was very much of an uphill battle to compile the source material from which you then had to imagine what the people were like. It's interesting because there's a, a man, Peter Quinn, and we write the same genre, but he's probably a hell of a lot better than I am. And he wrote an amazing book called The Banished Children of Eve about 20 years ago. And he had to spend hours and hours physically looking at old copies of newspapers. And he pieced together the story of the draft riots during the Civil War. What's amazing now is that as the Brooklyn Daily Eagle and the New York Times have been scanned, I could sit from home <laughs> and go through literally decades of, of, of material, journalistic material, very, very quickly. 
Right. So I think this is, is available to everybody. Right. There's also a, the Smithsonian has a site called Chronicling America, where all different newspapers throughout the country have been archived. So because the Habermeyers set up this sugar uh, trust, they were written about in Utah, they were written about in Idaho, in California. So I was able to sometimes find information about the Habermeyers in 19, late 19th century uh, Salt Lake City newspapers. Wow. Yeah. And when do you know the research is done? When do you start writing? Do you know at which point you're, you're ready to just start? Well, this is one of the interesting things about being a, a full-time history teacher. So I realized that I had a window during the summer, and then I had to get the material all put together. So I was accused of being very rude during the summer because I shut myself up for eight to ten hours a day and wrote and really produced it in the summer. That's a great idea. Like just to get a set amount of time, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree that that can help. So and then, really so, so you choice. never, so you never, did you not ever write during the school year, or just very little? I, I was putting a lot of research together. I mean, you know, writing lesson plans, grading, you know, being in school it doesn't leave you a lot of time. And I, I think the way I write, I need large blocks of time. Uh, sure. But the the two the two and a half months that I had in the summer really allowed me to do that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, I mean, we talked a lot about the characters and the people. What about the places? How do you get a handle on the places? Because you're seeing what you see today. You can't possibly see what you saw before. I mean, you see some images, obviously, but how do you set yourself in that scene, right? Well, you know, it, you it's do? funny. This is what I would do during the summer when I was writing. I don't live very far from the refinery where most of the action takes place. And then there's also a church on South 2nd Street, which I remember, but has just recently been torn down within the past year. And I would walk up by the refinery and kind of draw inspiration out of it. I'd be there at five or six in the morning sometimes as, as the light was coming up and walk along the East River and just try to imagine the scenes that I was going to sit down and describe. And I would walk down South 2nd Street. A lot of the stuff is still here. It takes an imagination to imagine what it was like during the 1870s or 1880s, but you didn't do it. Sure. So that's one thing to do. The other thing is there are a number of pictures and archives. So I would look at them, and I think any writer has to be blessed with a certain amount of imagination. Sure, imagination, and then you tie it in with, with the facts and make them interesting. That's the, the struggle. How do you make something true just because it's true, and although it's salacious, at least the way you picked up on the story with the Havemeyers, but you still have to make it a narrative arc. You still have to draw that thread out, and it's not easy. And I, I try to tell the story of the neighborhood from as many different perspectives as possible. So there is the, the dominant story of the Habermeyers and their conflict with their workers, but I also have the story of abolitionists here in Williamsburg. A lot of people don't know that there was a thriving black community here that agitated against slavery. So that's, that's part of the narrative. I talk about the formation of the Irish community here and the bigotry that they had to confront. There's a scene that I described where nativist mobs were ready to burn the Catholic church on South 2nd Street. I talk about boxers. There was one of seven boxers who was never defeated in the ring. 
started off making barrels uh, for the Havermeyers. And then I also talk about a politician called Patrick McCarran, who was this breathtakingly corrupt Irish-American politician who made sure that the Habermeyers were not interfered with and collected a lot of money. So it's not, it's not just one story. There are a number of different storylines, and, and I think that they sort of weave into a larger narrative. How did you track your storylines? Did, did you use, I mean, how do you, how do you write? Because a lot of people like to know, is it all computerized? Is it all on notepads, files? What did you do? So I bought a, a piece of cardboard that I stuck to the wall, and then I put post-its, and I had different columns for different characters, and I would put their years of birth and death and then different events, and it helped me to, to visualize the storyline. Yeah, that's great. Because yeah. I, I think that's difficult, right? You it's hold like a all of detective that. who's trying to unravel a mystery and figure out who done it. Right. So you seem to be so full of speculation and interest, and I'm just going to go way out on a limb and take a wild guess and say, you've got another book in mind. Is that true? Have you got some other projects that you got cooking? Or do you not, know what you want to do next? Not at the moment. I have some ideas of different different things I want to do, but I sort of... A historical epic like this, not at the moment. I am thinking of writing something that's very, very different, which would be a performance piece. I'm from Ireland, and there's a, a musician who's the greatest Irish musician who's a blind harpist called O'Carolyn, and very few people know anything about his music. So it would be a piece mixing his songs, playing on the harp, on the meter harpist, with the story of his life. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that idea. I love how you don't need fiction to create these magical sort of fascinating things. And I, I love how they're actually real. You just kind of look into life and look around us and sort of pluck out all the things to be amazed by that wow. we kind of ordinarily just walk past. I like that a lot. I can just see, you know, marketing will be fantastic. <laughs> you have some of the music to help it along. Right. As I said to you, Jeff, or I actually texted you, Jeff. I went to the Brooklyn Historical Society recently, and I think it's a great home for your books. I really think that they should be there. Well, it's funny because I've just been chosen as one of their summer scholars. Oh, there you go. So I'm going to be there for two Wonderful. weeks this, this summer. That's terrific. That's where well, you should be. Speaking about the business side of it, was your experience with getting published sort of arduous or was it smooth? I mean, did you find that publishers got you and understood what you did and wanted to bring forth your work and believed in it and formed a partnership? Or did you find that it was a battle because they were looking for commercial properties? Or how was your experience with actually taking these well-crafted pieces and bringing them out in a book form and getting them distributed? It's interesting because the first book, I had no idea the kind of reception that I was going to get. Right. And I didn't even think too much about, about going to publishers. I self-published. And I remember somebody told me, you won't sell 200 copies of the book. Wow. Well, he was wrong by a lot. And then with the second book, I actually had an offer from a publisher, and I was very excited. And then the woman who was helping me edit it said, have you looked at the fine print? And I said, no, what do you mean? She said, they're going to take all the money. Yeah. It's vanity publishing. Like, yeah, you, you'll be able to say you're a published author, but you don't want to make any money out of it. Yeah. And then because I write about Greenpoint, I sort of know how to market the book. 
I know a lot of people in the neighborhood. The local bookstore has been an amazing word has been amazing. Work. Yes, I agree. They, they, they've been very, very supportive. I've done readings there. Uh, there's also another bookstore that I've discovered with this book called Quimby's. Oh, uh, where is it? It's on Metropolitan Avenue. Huh. And, I'll have to stop by there. Right. The owner of the store read my book and he's a big fan. And, uh, so people invariably ask him, is there a book about Williamsburg? And he said, you got to read Jeff's book. That's right? wonderful. Sugar King. So, you know, uh, I thought about maybe doing, taking part of this story and expanding it and, and publishing it uh, with a traditional publisher. But that's somewhere down the road in the future. Yeah, I love that little sort of insight into something that we here at Lifelines already believe in, which is that there's a movement that will work counter to the degradation of literary publishing so that people who don't have vast commercial appeal but have high quality books really can find an outlet. And I'm just glad that you sort of stand for that. Mm -hmm. We have so many little independent bookstores that we really need to preserve. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm working on that, hopefully, with my, <laughs> with my distribution, but we'll talk about that another time. So we're going to wrap it up here, but we'd like to let you tell our listeners where they can find your books and more about you. Where should they find you online? So I have a, a web presence. I write a lot for greenpointers.com. Also, Jeffrey Cobb, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-C-O-B-B.com. I have a, a website. But you can buy my books on, on Amazon. Many bookstores here in, in North Brooklyn carry my, my books. And also, if you're interested, May 5th, I am going to give a walking tour. There used to be Bushwick Creek, which has been filled in. And I'm going to talk about the really early history of Greenpoint and Williamsburg, what Native American Greenpoint in Williamsburg was like and how the environment changed. Well, that's May 5th. It's 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock. It's part of Jane's Walks. What? Jane Jacobs was the great urbanist and in commemoration of her life on May 5th, people all over the planet give walks. So the Parks Department asked me if I would lead a walk. So uh, Sounds wonderful. please come out. And we'll put some links in the show notes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for being with us today. Will. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, great. it's been a really enjoyable conversation. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.